So last week, and this is one of my favorite chapters, 2 Corinthians 5. Last week we read about, well, let me just read you the last three verses of of chapter 4, because that's what we want to talk about tonight. Verse 16 of chapter 4, he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And that's a beautiful way to think. Let's live for the things we can't see. Let's not get hung up on things of this earth that pass away. But how do you actually live that way? I think in a lot of ways... We as Christians tend to live like a prisoner who gets letters from home every week and he reads the letters from his family because he wants to know what they're doing and he wants to know, uh, he wants to read when they talk about their pastimes together. But when they talk about, here's what we have planned for you when, they get, when you get out, he, he skips over those parts. He's like, ah, oh, that'll take care of itself. I don't want to worry about what happens when I get out of prison. That'll just take care of itself. Well, who would do that? If you're a prisoner, you want to know, you want to dream, you want to, you're probably keeping a little uh, calendar on your wall that says, okay, one day down, that's, that's how many days until I get out. Why wouldn't you want to think about what comes next? And yet we as Christians so often choose not to think about what comes next. And part of it is, oh, well, it's all taken care of. God, you know, Christ died for me. I know where I'm going. But how much do you know about what that's going to be like? Uh, To give another example, um, illustration, when I'm going on vacation, especially to a place I've never been before, I want to do as much research as I can so I can learn all I can about the place I'm going to be. And that's a lot easier today than it was when I first became an adult because now the Internet exists. And you can go online and you can, you can actually see a picture of your hotel room, what my hotel room's going to look like. You can, you can see, okay, you can look on a little map and say, okay, here's the restaurants that are close by and here's how long it'll take me to get from there to that, to that tourist site I want to go to, that museum or that amusement park or whatever. You can plan it all out in your mind. Of course, it never goes the way you plan. But, but don't you want to imagine it? Don't, doesn't that kind of get you through those last several weeks before vacation to kind of daydream about, oh, what it's going to be like when you get to that place? Well, why wouldn't we do the same with the place God has gone to prepare for us? I think the, the, the thing people often think is, well, we just it's too good for us to even comprehend. Well, I agree that a lot of it is going to be greater than we can understand or imagine, but God's given us a lot of information in His Word. So why not at least study those passages? So this chapter, or at least these first 10 verses, are are expanding on what Paul said at the end of chapter 4. When he says, don't focus on the things that are temporary, focus on the things that are eternal. Don't focus on the things that are seen, focus on the things that are unseen. Here's what that looks like. So we start with verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. 
For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And there's several things to see there, but the main way I want to sum up those five verses is know the difference between what is temporary and what's eternal. That's the main way. That's one of the main ways we make sure we live the way we should, to live with hope in our hearts. Know the difference between what is temporary and what is eternal. Paul calls our earthly bodies tents. And I think that that uh, illustration comes naturally to Paul because that's what he did for a living. He was a tent maker. He did not receive money from his ministry. He was not fortunate like I am to be paid by a generous church to just do ministry full time. He had to work a day job and then minister, and his day job was making tents. And as he would build those tents every day out of leather or whatever materials he was using, it occurred to him, this is like our earthly bodies. Nobody, nobody lives in one of these forever. If you think you're going to live in a tent forever, you're either not going to live very long or you're going to be disappointed because they just aren't built to last. It is a temporary home. It is for camping. It is for traveling. Um, but what is our house? If these earthly bodies are our tents, what is our house? Well, it's the dwelling to come. It's the body that we will receive. You have to pair this with what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he talked about the bodies that are coming. We'll talk more about those in just a moment. He says, not that we want to be unclothed. What does he mean when he says that? Oh, well, one thing you need to understand about the, the culture that Paul lived and ministered in of course, Paul was born and raised in a Jewish culture, but he spent most of his Christian life in a very Gentile culture. He was the apostle to the Gentiles, and he didn't have much competition from the other apostles. They were glad to let him have those Gentiles. But among Gentiles, the predominant manner of thinking was to follow Greek philosophy. And Greek philosophy taught that your highest goal should be to escape your body. Your body is a prison. Your body is this rotting, stinking, uh, foul thing that you're trapped in now. And if you're very, very fortunate and you live the right way, the gods will grant you your wish and you'll get to escape your body. That is Greek thinking. In fact, that's not just Greek thinking. That's, that's sort of the, the mindset of a lot of Eastern religion. That's, that's the view of heaven that you get in Hinduism, Buddhism, and much of Eastern religion. But it's not the biblical vision. The goal of the Christian life is not to escape your body. The goal of the Christian life is something more. He says, we groan while we're in these bodies. Why do we groan? Well, because life in these earthly bodies is never quite what we want it to be. Similar to if you had the nicest tent on earth, it would still be miserable to be in the middle of a blizzard, wouldn't it? Sub-zero temperatures. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, you may have the nicest tent on earth, but you're not going to enjoy uh, uh, being in the middle of uh, a jungle with, with heat and humidity. It can't protect you from everything. In the same way, our earthly bodies, no matter how blessed we are and how good a shape we think we're in now, they still have problems. They still don't live up to our expectations. And the longer we live in these tents, the more they start to break down. They were not meant to be permanent. And so we need to expect that. That doesn't mean resign ourselves to 
uh, illness and, and pain, I, I think there's not, let me just say, there is nothing unchristian about saying, I have this pain and I want to do something about it. I'm going to go to the doctor and see if it can be fixed. Nothing wrong with that at all. And certainly nothing wrong with being a good steward of the body God has given you so that you can represent him well. He's, he's given you this precious thing, so do your best with it. But again, I think our attitude toward our bodies should be like the attitude we have toward cars. Some of you are car people, probably, in this room. Some of you probably aren't. For you, cars just a place to go from A to B. But for you who are car people, you take care of that vehicle. You, you wash it, you wax it, you vacuum it. It's, it's, it's always looking good. You change the oil, you give it regular tune-ups, and you take good care of it. And good on you. You're being, you're being a good steward of a very expensive uh, purchase that you made some time ago. But no matter how good a care you take of that car, you know it's not going to last forever. Sometimes uh, it, can always, it can go away from you just like that. Somebody T-bones you in an intersection or some guy steals it out, right out of your garage. That can happen. Or even if not, eventually those parts start to wear out, start to break down. No car lasts forever. No body lasts forever. Know the difference between what is temporary and what is permanent. The last thing he says in that, ver- in that passage is, God has prepared us for this and he's given us his spirit as a guarantee. That word guarantee is sort of like down payment. God has given us the Holy Spirit as a way of saying, you see, this is how much you mean to me. I'm going to invest in you, my Holy Spirit, myself in spirit form. I'm going to come live in your earthly body now as a guarantee that someday you'll live in the heavenly body I will give you then. And one of the reasons why, there's another part of the scriptures and it's blanking in my mind right now, but where the, the, the Holy Spirit is, is called a first fruits. It's like an appetizer. In other words, the best moments we have with the Holy Spirit when we're worshiping and we just feel lifted out of our circumstances and in the embrace of God, or when we're afraid and we feel the peace that passes understanding, or when we're doing something in obedience to the Lord and we feel the, that surge of power that the Spirit gives us that enables us to say things that we wouldn't ordinarily be bold enough or smart enough to say. Those kinds of times when we really feel under the Holy Spirit's control, those are like little foretastes of what heaven's going to be like. So he's given it to us as a deposit, as a guarantee. These things are coming. Your heavenly body is coming. Now look at verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So the next part of, of living in light of eternity is to see death for what it really is. Death is something that human beings have feared universally since the very beginning. It's something that we don't like to talk about. We don't like to think about. One of the things that one of the big changes in human society today is we've outsourced the deaths, the death of our loved ones. You know, it used to be 
There was no hospice. There were no funeral homes. Everything was done by the family. And so if a member of the family was dying, they died in their home and the whole family got to be part of that process. And when they died, the whole family had to be part of the process of preparing them for burial, conducting whatever services they were going to have, digging a grave. You know, this, this is all, we sort of outsourced that. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but one of the byproducts, because honestly, thank God for hospices and funeral homes. I think they perform a great service. But one of the byproducts of that is most of us never really think about death. That Those two or three times a year when we go to a funeral, we get in and get out as quick as we can because we don't like to think about it. And yet, once you're in Christ, death is no longer something to fear. Death has been defanged, has been defeated by Jesus' resurrection. Verses 6 through 8 that I just read. Those are some of the most comforting verses in the Bible for anyone who, is, uh, who sees their life starting to dwindle or for anybody who's grieving the loss of somebody else. Those are incredibly comforting uh, verses. When he says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Right now he says we walk by faith and not by sight. Right now we're like blind people just kind of stumbling around, listening to the voice of our Father and trusting that He's leading us in the right way, but someday we're going to see the way He sees. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I know I've told this story before, but before I was even a pastor, I just graduated from uh, seminary and was living with my parents, Carrie and I were, uh, while we were hoping I'd find a church. And terrible tragedy happened, and uh, I, I got asked to do a funeral. But the person who died uh, had a mixed family. Some of them were Catholic and some of them were Baptist. And so I was asked to represent the Baptists in the funeral service. And the, the local priest at St. Joseph's there in Yoakum, he was asked to represent the Catholic side. So he, he got to do the main part. And I just got to share a little something. And one of the things I shared was, you know, on the cross, Jesus said to the man dying next to him, who as he died said, Father, remember me when I come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't say tomorrow. He didn't say someday. He didn't say, let's hope. He said today. And I didn't even think about Catholic Protestant stuff. I was just thinking about, hey, I want to give y'all some assurance. And I was honestly... I was so young at this, I, my knees were shaking. I had no idea whether I was doing a good job or not. But after the service, the priest actually came to me and said, you know, you're right, I never thought about it. It really does say today, doesn't it? Because in Catholic thought, there's the idea of purgatory. But it's not in the Scriptures. In the Scriptures it says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What good news that is. Now, when your loved one passes away, you have every right to, to be sad and to weep, but your tear, as long as you know your tears are not for them because they're experiencing the presence of Christ. Now, what does that mean? What, is, what, what exactly are they experiencing? I hate to disappoint you, but we don't know a lot about what happens or what they experience when they die. Here's what we do know. We know they're in the presence of God based on this verse, and we know that is a place that Jesus called paradise. Now, paradise is an interesting word. It's not even a, a Hebrew word. It's, it's a word that came from the, uh, from the Persian language. Remember, Persia 
ruled over Israel for several centuries. And so they learned to adopt some of their words. In Persian, paradise was what you called it if you were a rich person and you had your own private garden, a walled garden where you and your family and your closest friends could sit and you didn't have to worry about the riffraff because they were, they were kept out. Well, Jesus called heaven, the, that, that place you go when you die in him, he called it paradise. And I think that's good news. There's three times that, that word is used. One is in that moment at the cross. The second is when Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, which we'll read in several weeks, is talking about the vision he had of going up to heaven. He said he saw paradise. And then the third time is in Revelation 2 verse 7 in one of Christ's letters to the seven churches in Revelation. So paradise is where we go when we die. In the Old Testament, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, okay, this is a little complicated, so I hope I can explain this well. The Bible Jesus and most of the apostles read, the Old Testament that is, was actually a Greek Bible. It was called the Septuagint. They, when they translated the, the Old Testament into Greek, they used this word, paradise, for the Garden of Eden. Which again, very interesting, isn't it? It's almost as though we started out in a garden and we blew that. So Jesus died and redeemed us, and then we get to go back to a garden. Now, not a lot of specifics there, but the two specifics we have, we're in the presence of Christ, and Jesus called it paradise. That makes it sound pretty good. Now, here's a couple of other things. These aren't things we can prove. These are things that are just interesting to note. One is Hebrews 12.1 says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And that's just after Hebrews 11, which is the chapter where he talks about the saints who've gone before us. And so some believe, and I, I'm one of those, some believe that Paul is picturing us as almost like we're in the middle of a stadium and all the saints who've gone before us and our loved ones too are watching and cheering us on. Of course, we can't hear them and we shouldn't pray to them. We pray to Jesus, we pray to God. But if that's true, that lends another layer of detail. It, it, there's a possibility, at least, that one of the things people in paradise will do is observe what's going on down here and, and see it from the perspective of God. And then there's this. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, describes John the Apostle seeing the martyrs, the people who died on earth, and they're up there in heaven, in heaven's throne room. And they say to the Lord, Lord, how long? How long until we get justice? How long until our souls are avenged? In other words, they were martyred for the faith. They were, they were killed unjustly. And they say, when's judgment day coming? Which is interesting. Of course, Revelation's hard to interpret. It's hard to know what, what things are to be taken literally and what aren't, but that indicates that at least some people in paradise are longing for something else. They're in a good place, but there's more to come. What is the thing to come? Well, I think it's the resurrection. That's what we get to next. Verse, uh, verses 2 through 5 are countercultural. I mean, this, this whole passage is countercultural even in the church. We, we don't want to be unclothed. We want Jesus to return so we can receive our resurrection bodies. That's what Paul's saying. I don't want to be unclothed. I want to be clothed. He's saying, 
I, you know, if I die, I'm going to be with Jesus to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. I'm good with that. But if you give me a choice, I'm going to be in my body the day Jesus returns so I don't have to be unclothed at any time. Now, that goes against what we've been told. Not, not what we've been told, but what we've often thought. A lot of us grew up thinking, okay, the goal of the Christian life is to die and go to heaven. And then we get to be Christians these days, and the whole emphasis turns into, oh, no, 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 the, the whole point of the Christian life is to build a, a, a meaningful life down here, to, to get God to give you the good things, to sort of build heaven on earth. Well, I don't think either one of those is the biblical vision. The biblical vision is to yearn for the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. And I think that's what we see here. Paul is saying, I don't want to die and go to heaven. I want Jesus to return so I can have my new body. Does that mean Paul doesn't want it, doesn't, Paul thinks there's something inferior about heaven? No, we're going to find out in chapter 12. It's an amazing place. He just knows there's something even better. And anytime I say that, there are people who come to me and say, okay, I've never heard this before. Uh, this bothers me. I'm going to have to think about this a while. But when you read the scriptures, just look how often you see this idea of resurrection, of return of Christ, instead of this idea of, well, the whole goal is to get out of this body and to get up to the presence of Christ. The, the goal is, the end game is, the day of, the, what a day of rejoicing it will be is when Christ returns, the earth is renewed, and we get to walk the earth in real bodies. Now, why is that better? I just went through this whole thing about talking about how Jesus calls it up there paradise and, and we're in his presence constantly. So we know there's no sin. We know there's no suffering. Why is it better? Why is it more comforting? Well, because we can understand. We can imagine it. If, if the vision of heaven in the scriptures was, well, let me put it this way. In the Middle Ages, when you ask a theologian, what is heaven like? They'd say, well, it's the beatific vision. What is the beatific vision? It's this idea that God is so beautiful that for all eternity, we're just going to sit and gaze upon Him. Now, that's hard to wrap your mind around. And I don't think that's what the Scriptures say. That's not very comforting, is it? It makes it sound like we're going to be zombies. But the biblical vision is we get new bodies that don't get old, that don't get hurt, that don't get sick, that don't die. We get new bodies... And new bodies means we get to do things. We get to walk and run. We get to work. We get to play. We get to eat. We get to laugh. We get to embrace one another. We can recognize each other. Remember, Jesus rose from the dead. He still looked like Jesus. By the way, if that disappoints you, if you were hoping you'd look way different in the next life, I mean... I don't think so. And, and I don't think you're going to be as concerned about those kind of vanities then. I mean, I'd love to think I'd be six foot four, but I don't think it'll matter when I get there. Um, we, can, we can imagine it. We, the Bible talks about the new earth being a place where work is done, where the kings of the earth bring their goods into the city of gold, uh, where we praise the Lord. I am counting on the fact that I'll be able to sing as well as Robert when I get there. I may be disappointed, but um, we will do, th it will be an active life. That's the vision we get from Scripture. 
And back to what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Okay, so what are these bodies like? Remember, the four adjectives that are used in that book, in that chapter. Imperishable, which means they don't wear out. There's no expiration date on them. Glorious, which means we'll be able to uh, uh, be in the presence of the Lord. Powerful. Now, we don't know all that that means, but maybe we'll have new capabilities in these new bodies. And then spiritual. Spiritual. We will never sin. And when people ask, and this is, what, this is a common question when you think about it, this idea of new bodies. Well, we sinned in these bodies. Why wouldn't we sin in our new bodies? And I don't know. It's obvious to me from Scripture that we won't. My best guess is, sort of like when you look into the kitchen of your favorite restaurant and what you see there makes you think, I'm never eating here again. We will have seen sin's kitchen by the time we get to heaven. By the time we get to our new bodies, we will have seen what sin does to us, to our loved ones, to the world, to God, and we won't have a taste for it anymore. We've been there. We've done that. Whereas the glory that we've, the little bit of glory we've, uh, that we've had in the presence of Christ here, we're going to be so hungry for that when we get there. So verse 9 So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that's the last part of how to to live for eternity, and that is live with judgment day in mind. And I know as as Christians, especially in churches like ours that are Bible-believing and gospel-centered and and we've emphasized over and over again, you don't do it yourself, you don't earn your way into heaven, and all that's true. And so there's sort of a corollary to that of, well, I'm not worried about Judgment Day. Well, you shouldn't worry about Judgment Day. Jesus has done that for you, but you should think about it. Because what I understand from the Scriptures is, although our salvation is taken care of, we will still stand before Him in judgment we will still give an accounting of our lives. And I don't think that means he's going to read off a list of sins because I think Christ has done those and and those are forgiven and forgotten. I I think it'll be something more along the lines of, uh, what did you do with this family I gave you? What did you do with this job that I provided you with and and these resources and these opportunities and these relationships? How did you you handle those? What did you do with those? Romans 14.12 says, each of us will have to give an account of himself before God. God. I'm kind of haunted by the parable of the talents that Jesus told, in which those three servants are given money by their master as he goes away on a trip. And when he gets back, he wants to know, what did you do with that that money I left you? And the one who didn't do anything with the money but buried it in in the ground, he's in trouble. And you would think he wouldn't be because he didn't lose it. He didn't waste it. It's still there. But the master's point is, you had all this time to do something with this opportunity and you buried it. And I don't want that to be said of me. And I don't want that to be said of of anybody who's in my church who I'm supposed to be discipling. I don't want them to get there and go, well, Jeff, you didn't tell me I was supposed to be doing something with my life. I thought it was enough just to be saved. Again, you don't read things into parables that contradict the scriptures. So don't read the parable of the talents and make it sound like if I don't accomplish a lot for Jesus, I'm going to lose my salvation. That is not the case. But I do think there will be regret. 
The one story from my own past that helps me wrap my mind around it is I graduated from college. I had, I had lucked into, basically because I'm good at taking tests, I had lucked into getting in the honors program in my university, which meant I got to live in a dorm with a bunch of smart people, which was really, really good because they studied all the time and it helped me. It was a good influence on me. Made some good friends. Um, at graduation, they read off the names and they'd say, John Jones, Bachelor of Arts, Magna Cum Laude, graduation with honors, and they'd list all, this, all these accomplishments. And then, you know, Julie Smith, summa cum laude, with honors, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they got to my name and they said, Jeff Berger, Bachelor of Arts, that's it. Now, was I still graduated? Yeah. I still had that piece of paper. I was getting married in a week, none of that changed. And yet there was this little bit of regret that, you know, if I really would have tried harder, I might could have gotten some of those honors. And I think that's, that's the way some of us are going to feel on Judgment Day. Some of us who are redeemed. Thank God by His grace I'm redeemed. But I wish I would have tried harder. Not because it would have changed anything about my eternal state, but because I feel like I wasted an opportunity. There was a song we used to sing when I was growing up. I don't know if y'all grew up with this one, but it was, Must I Go and Empty-Handed? Have y'all ever heard this? The chorus is, must I go and empty-handed, must I meet my Savior so, not one soul with which to greet Him, must I empty-handed go. I think the way to live is to live as if to say, I know I'm going to see Jesus face-to-face someday, and there's nothing I can do to possibly even come close to paying Him back for what He's done, but I want to at least be able to say, Lord, You died, You redeemed me, You loved me more than anybody ever loved me, and more, far more than I ever deserved. So here's what I did to say thank you. And be able to say, I did my best with this group of people. I, I, I shared the gospel with, with this person. And I, I helped this person who was hurting. And I, I devoted my life to this ministry or to this need. I think that's what you're going to want to do. And if you live that way, knowing that someday you'll give an accounting before the one who died to save you, you'll live a much more fruitful and productive life. So, good news as always in the Word of God. And next week, we'll see what that means for our relationships with others. But let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that this world is not all there is. And so I pray that you would fill us with hope. Help us, Lord, to every day think about the world to come. And I pray, Lord, that that would enable us to face our own mortality with greater hope and security and to help us also as we grieve the loss of ones we love and also, Lord, to live in a way that there's a sense of purpose and excitement about life because what we do here really matters. For it's in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.